Now, we are in part two of a very uh, easy sermon series to preach called Race, Sex, and Politics in the Church. Race, Sex, and Politics. It is so good to see that there are people here uh, that uh, came last week and then came again. Um, we'll see if you come next week. So, um, yeah, th- this, is, this is an intense series. Uh, and so what I want to do before I even begin today's sermon is I, I'm, I'm going to take a moment, just a moment, we're going to pray. Um, we're going to pray for our hearts around this topic. We're going to pray for peace. Uh, we know that around the world there's all kinds of wars and factions and dissensions, and Russia has invaded Ukraine, and this has been a, a major uh, issue in the news, and I know a lot of people are following it. So I know there's a lot of uncertainty and unrest in our hearts, um, and I just want to say that, that, that God is with us. Um, in fact, the, the Scripture teaches that when we pray, uh, when we humble ourselves and pray and uh, turn from our sins, God hears uh, from heaven and he, uh, and he heals our land. Um, we also know that when we pray, it brings peace. It brings the peace of God that passes understanding. So um, let's just take a moment before we get into today's sermon and let's still our hearts and let's call upon the Lord, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We, we are honored, God, to be here in your presence today. We pray, God, that um, we pray that your word and your spirit would settle into our hearts here at the U City campus, at the Shaw campus, online, wherever people are watching, God. I pray that your, your love and your grace, your truth and your will would be made manifest in our lives today. We do pray for the people of Ukraine, Lord God, that, that you would bring peace and salvation to them, Lord God. We pray uh, for strength, uh, for peace, for hope, God. We pray that ultimately you would come and you would bring the Prince of Peace into a very troubled world. We open our hearts to receive you today. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So last week, uh, I, I, I mentioned, I opened by saying that talking about race, sex, and politics in the church is a little bit like stepping into a minefield, trying to clear a minefield. The benefit, obviously, of clearing a minefield is that future generations that step into that minefield will not blow themselves up on the mines that are buried beneath the ground. The obvious risk of clearing a minefield is that as you seek to clear the mines from under the surface of, uh, of, of the minefield, we risk blowing ourselves up. Uh, and the reality is that when we talk about race or sex or politics, these topics are so so intricately intertwined in our sense of personhood and our sense of identity that they can be like minds buried just below the surface of our emotions and of our hearts. And so what I want to do today, as I did last week and as I'll do next week, is I want to take, I want to take you through the minefield with the Word of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and I want us today to just trust that God's Word is powerful enough, His Gospel is powerful enough to remove the minds that might uh, be under the surface in our hearts and in our cultures and in our minds and in our lives. If race is a minefield, then sex is even more of a minefield because sex is so completely intertwined with, with who we are and how we see ourselves. So I want to begin the sermon today by stating a few basic statements about the extent and the reach of God's love for each and every one of us. I'm going to give you a list. 
of truths. You don't have to write these down, but I'm going to just say this at the beginning of the sermon. If you're single, God loves you. If you're married, God loves you. If you're divorced or widowed, God loves you. If you're straight, God loves you. If you're gay, God loves you. If you're lesbian, bi, trans, or queer, God loves you. If you're promiscuous, God loves you. If you're celibate, God loves you. If you're a virgin, God loves you. If you're a prostitute, God loves you. If you're addicted to pornography, God loves you. If you're pregnant out of wedlock, God loves you. If you've been trying unsuccessfully to have a child, God loves you. If you've had an abortion, God loves you. If you carry guilt, shame, or condemnation due to past sexual decisions, regrettable decisions, God loves you. If you've been sexually abused, assaulted, or mistreated in any way, God loves you. Wherever you are on the spectrum of sexuality, you are loved by God, so much so that the scripture says he sent his son to die in our place, to redeem us, to restore us, and to bring us into a deep, meaningful relationship with him. Wherever you are and whoever you are, I want you to know today that you are loved by God. You are loved. And my prayer for all of us, wherever you are, is that One Family Church would be the safest place in the world for you to come forward with your sexual hurt, confusion, pain, desires, struggles, challenges, and questions. That's what the church should be. It should not be a place that rejects and ostracizes people who are uh, struggling with sexual pain and hurt. It should be the most welcoming and loving place on the planet. I also believe in my heart of hearts that if we, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, and I do not presume that that's everybody in here. I know there are a lot of people that are kind of peeking over the fence and just checking this out. Uh, this, is, this is primarily a sermon for believers. But if you're an unbeliever, you do get the opportunity to see what believers are called to do and be. I, I, I believe that if we, as Jesus followers, could get a hold of both the truth and the grace of God in the area of sex and sexuality, we would become a light. We would become a beacon. We would become a sanctuary of peace and hope for those who long to be made whole. I genuinely believe that. That is what I want for this church. That is what I want for each and every one of us. So uh, get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. We're taking a deep dive. I'm going to serve what they call the meat of the scripture today, not the milk of the scripture. Okay, so if you're, if you're used to the milk of the scripture, this is going to be a little deep. Now, I will tell you, all of these notes are online. They're attached to our sermon on our, uh, on our webpage or on, um, on YouTube. So if you don't catch all the notes today, uh, you can go back and catch those notes um, online. Today, the title of my sermon is, in the form of a question, why does God care what I do with my body? Why does God care what I do with my body? That's the title of today's sermon. The topic of sex is found, by the way, if you have young kids, it's, this sermon is all about sex. So it's, if you want them to hear it, great. And if you don't, one family kids. <laughs> Pancake breakfast. Uh, the topic of sex is found in the very first book of the Bible, and there are hundreds of references to sex throughout the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament. 
For thousands of years in every imaginable culture around the world, the Christian church and the Jewish faith have taught a consistent, though often unpopular, sexual ethic. They have taught uh, that sexual activity between a man and a woman who are married to one another should be encouraged and supported. And they have categorically forbidden Christians uh, from any and all sexual activity outside of that marital arrangement. That's been the sexual ethic that has been taught by the church for 2,000 years. It's the position that was held by the Jews before the church was launched. And it's the position that we support and espouse as a Christian church. As you know, this is not a popular position in our culture. For obvious reasons, it was not a a popular position in the early Greco-Roman world either because it turns out that human beings, all of us, none of us, like to be told, even by God, who to sleep with, who not to sleep with, when to have sex, when not to have sex. We We don't like that kind of instruction over our life. And yet the Bible remains stubbornly clear on these topics. The Bible does not make a passing reference to sex. It provides comprehensive instructions for sex and sexuality. In reference to married sex between a husband and wife, the Bible is clearer than you probably think it is. The Apostle Paul wrote in a letter to the Corinthian church, this is what he wrote to married people in the church. He said, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill the marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but she yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. He's talking about sexually. Come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Pretty explicit instructions for married life. So when it comes to sex between a married man and a married woman, the scripture not only blesses but strongly encourages sexual activity. And yet outside of that arrangement, sex for Christians is totally prohibited. Throughout the New Testament, the biblical writers used a catch-all phrase, a Greek word to describe any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. They used the Greek word porneia, porneia. This is where we get the word pornography today. Porneia described any sexual activity, real or imagined, outside the union of marriage between a man and a woman. Porneia means sex with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a partner of the same or opposite sex, sex with somebody else's spouse, sex with a prostitute, uh, sex even in your mind. That's what porneia means in the scripture. Your Bible, depending on what translation you use, may use the word uh, sexual immorality, unchastity, fornication, depends on your, your uh, translation. But the underlying word there is the word porneia. In Matthew 15, Jesus says this, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, porneia, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. In the letter to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote, the body is not meant for porneia, but is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In Ephesians 5.3, it says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of porneia, or any kind of impurity, because these are improper for God's holy people. The Bible uses this word 25 times in the New Testament alone. Jesus talks about it, James talks about it, Luke talks about it, Paul talks about it. It's in Matthew, Mark, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and Revelation. The Bible has some stuff to say about sex. 
It's all through the Bible. It's everywhere. So the question that we have today that, that we ask in our culture today is why? Why does it matter to God what I do with my body? Why does the Bible care so much about what we do with our bodies sexually? So today what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to answer this question in four subparts, in four sub-questions. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here they are. The first one is whose we are. This is a question of ownership. Number two, who we are. This is a question of identity. Number three, what we're for. This is a question of purpose. And number four, what we're worth. And this is a question of value. You guys good eating on the meat of the word of the Lord today? Everybody doing okay out there? Okay, 17 people are okay. Everybody else is not sure. I want to start today by highlighting one word in the question. Why does God care what I do with my body? And the question I want to highlight is the word my. Why does God care what I do with my body? The presumption in that question is that my body belongs to me. That's the presumption in that question, that I own my body, that my body is autonomous, independent, and holy and completely under my authority. This is a reasonable position to take unless, unless you're a follower of Jesus. Is it true for Christians that our bodies belong to us? Is it true for Christians that our bodies, our bodies, our physical bodies are autonomous, independent, and holy and completely under our authority? In order for us to understand why God cares what we do with our bodies, we have to begin by exploring the question of ownership. The first question we have to answer is, number one, whose we are. Whose we are. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but you get the idea. To whom, to whom do we belong? The reason this is a fundamentally important question for us to ask is because the owner of a thing gets to dictate how the thing is used. I'm going to give you an example. Let's say I have $100 million. Let's just say that. And I give that $100 million to my financial advisor. And I say to my financial advisor, I'm going to give you $100 million, and I want you to invest it in renewable resources. I want you to put it in, in wind, solar, and, uh, and, and water. Wind, solar, and water. Wind, solar, and water. Yeah, that's what I want you to put it in. And my financial advisor says, okay, so I write the check, I send the check. I check, I check my, uh, my books a week later. I check my account a week later, and I see that my financial advisor has invested in coal, oil, and gas. Okay? So I call up my financial advisor, and I say, I thought I told you to put it in wind, water, and solar, but you put it in coal, oil, and gas. What if my advisor were to say back to me, what do you care what I do with my money? If the financial advisor said, what do you care what I do with my money? It would demonstrate a fundamental misunderstanding, a fundamental misapprehension of the financial advisor's ownership interest in the money that I gave him. It would fundamentally represent a misunderstanding of the nature of the relationship between me and him. It would represent a false idea about his claim to the money. If he said, what do you care what I do with my money? What it would be saying is he doesn't understand that it's not his money, it's my money. It's under his care, it's under his supervision, but it doesn't belong to him, it belongs to me. When those of us who call ourselves Jesus followers or Christians, when we ask the question, what does God care what I do with my body? What we are doing is fundamentally misunderstanding, misapprehending the nature of our ownership interest in our own body. 
We're misunderstanding the nature of, of our relationship with God because our bodies, the scripture teaches us, are not ours. The scripture teaches us that our bodies are not our own. Our bodies don't belong to us. First Corinthians 6 says this, you are not your own. This is, this is the letter to the Corinthians. In other words, you don't own your own body. We don't own our own body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So when we ask the question, why does God care what I do with my body? We presume a false fact about the nature of our relationship between our bodies. Our bodies are under our management they're under our care, they're under our supervision, but they have never belonged to us. Our bodies have never belonged to us. God is the giver and the taker of life. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything under our care, everything under our supervision, our money, our house, our families, our friends, our lives, everything. Everything is for our stewardship and our management, but we don't own it. Everything belongs to God. Everything was made by God and for God. We belong to him. Psalm 100 verse 3 says this. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. This is ownership language. This is God saying, I made you. You belong to me. So when we ask the question, what does God care what I do with my body? We have to modify the question to understand that actually we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. If my body were my own, if I were able to dictate and have authority over my own body, then of course I can do whatever I want with my body because I would be the sole arbiter and dictator for my own body. In essence, I would have become my own God. I'll do with my body whatever my body tells me to do. I'll follow my body's commands and dictates and desires because my body is in charge. And there's no higher authority than than me for my body. That's, that's what it would be like if I did not have a higher authority. My wishes, my thoughts, my drives, my desires would dictate my actions because I am the authority over my body. But that's not what the scripture teaches us. If our bodies belong to God, then our bodies are under God's authority, not ours. Is anybody still with me or, or, or are we just drifted? Okay, 19 people. By the end, I might have. This dynamic... This dynamic is what the Apostle Paul describes in the first book of Romans when he says that the fundamental basis for sin, including and especially sexual sin, is our failure to recognize God as our authority and our inclination to view ourselves as the authority over ourselves. In other words, we worship that which is created rather than the creator himself. The Apostle Paul is talking about humanity in Romans 1. He's talking about us in this passage. So when he says they, I'm going to say we. As I read you this passage, he writes this to the Romans. He says, for although we knew God, talking about us, people like us, even though we knew God, we neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but our thinking became futile and our foolish hearts were darkened. Although we claimed to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. Therefore, God gave us over in the sinful desires of our hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of our bodies with one another. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying that the fundamental basis for sin is a failure to honor, respect, and obey God as our creator and as the final authority over our bodies. 
But when we submit our lives and submit our bodies to God, when we accept his authority over our lives, when, when our lives are directed toward honoring, pleasing, and loving him, in other words, when we fully grasp from the scripture whose we are, then we can answer the second question, which is number two, who we are. Who we are. The first question was a question of ownership. The second question is a question of identity. When a sculptor, a master sculptor, determines to sculpt a beautiful vase, the end result of the efforts of the sculptor is a beautiful vase. It is a vase because that's what the sculptor made. The vase cannot say to the sculptor, I am a cup or I am a dish, because the identity of the vase is determined by the maker of the vase. In other words, write this down, the creator determines the identity of the created. The creator determines the identity of the created. Whoever makes it, names it. Here's how the Isaiah prophet, uh, the prophet Isaiah put it in, ver- in chapter 29 of his book. He said, you turn things upside down as if the potter were taught to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And then the apostle Paul picks this up in the letter that he writes to the Romans, he says, Oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? You see, if we accept God as our creator, our author, our maker, then we must accept that it is God who defines us and not ourselves. The book of Genesis spells this out with beautiful clarity in a doctrine known as the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is a doctrine that describes the image the image of God. So in the very first chapter of the very first book in the Bible, it says this. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So two things to note from this passage. The first is the divine imprint that is placed upon all humanity. We are made in God's image. We are made in God's likeness. To be made in God's image and in God's likeness means that somehow we are fundamentally similar to God in some way. We are a reflection of God. We are an expression of the creativity of God. Something about us corresponds to something about God. Example, when you look at my my daughter Eden, you can tell that she is made in the image of my wife Rebecca. She looks like Rebecca did when she was a little kid. She talks like Rebecca. She acts like Rebecca. She dresses like Rebecca. She is made in the image of Rebecca. That's what in the image means. It means that the thing that is made somehow reflects the thing that made it. And the scripture says that each and every one of us bears the image, the mark, the likeness of God. This is deep stuff. We bear the image of God. And so what is fascinating about this scripture is that it it actually introduces gender in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible as a fundamental aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. Let's look at the scripture again. It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This means that at a fundamental level, our gender is designed and developed by God It's an intrinsic and inherent part of the way we reflect God's image on the earth. This means that our bodies matter. Our bodies matter. We are not just spirits in random physical forms. 
Our actual bodies, including our biological sex and our gender, is inherently part of what it means to be made in God's image and God's likeness. It is so important for Christians to have massive amounts of compassion and grace for individuals in our church and outside of it who experience psychological and emotional disconnect between their body and their sense of gender. This can be a a very distressing condition and one that should be approached with love and humility. It's also deeply important for us to understand and to embrace the spiritual reality that our gender is defined by God, not by us. Our gender, according to the scripture, is an inherent part of our unique expression of the image of God. It's not arbitrary. It's not self-defined. It's defined by God from the very beginning of time. And what is so beautiful about the doctrine of Imago Dei, the image of God, is that if we know whose we are and we know who we are, then we, we can begin to understand, number three, which is what we're for. This is a question of purpose. What is the purpose of our bodies? What is the purpose of the human body? 1 Corinthians six eighteen says this. Flee from sexual immorality, porneia. Then it says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And this is a beautiful, beautiful point in the scripture. It says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. This is so important for us to get, church. Your body is a temple. Your body is a temple. What's a temple? A temple is a sacred space. A temple is a holy and reverent place. A temple is a place of reverence and worship. But in this context, it's it's even more than that. A temple in the biblical context is God's dwelling place. It is the place where the manifest presence of God resides. This means that the Holy Spirit given to you by God resides in the holy, sacred, consecrated temple of your body. Is that sinking in for anybody? Your body, your physical body is God's temple. This is why God cares about what you do with your body. He cares because he lives there. He cares because your body, our bodies, are his home. He cares because the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the almighty, all-powerful, all-merciful, and all-loving God has taken up residence in our bodies, in our physical bodies. That's what the scripture is talking about, not metaphorically. The flesh and blood of your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where God lives. This is why God cares what you do with your body sexually, because sex is both a spiritual and a physical act. It's both spiritual and physical. The scripture teaches us that sex has a spiritual function and a physical function. The physical function is easy to understand. Sex is the means by which every human being on the earth exists. It's the means by which humans procreate. Every person listening to this sermon at U-City at Shaw, online, every one of us is here as a result of sex. If even one of your 10,000 ancestors, just one of them, 
did not have sex, you would not be here. I hope I'm not being too on the nose. So sex obviously has a physical and appropriative aspect to it, but it is a deeply spiritual act. I'm going to take you deep into Genesis. I'm going to take you deep into some theology, okay? See if you can still swim after this is over. The book of Genesis chapter 2, it says this. It says, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, God took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought the woman to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then the scripture says this. It's fascinating. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Notice what happens in the story. God takes one body, and out of one body makes two bodies. Then the scripture says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. Because in the committed sexual union between a man and a woman who are married to each other, we reenact in reverse order the divine act of creation. In creation, God takes one and makes two. In marriage, God takes two and makes one. In creation, one body becomes two bodies. In marriage, two bodies become one. Sex is not just a physical act. Sex is a spiritual reunification of male and female operating in divine harmony with the creator of the universe. Sex is spiritual. Does this mean that everybody should get married and have sex? No, it does not. Jesus himself chose to never marry. The apostle Paul was unmarried throughout his entire ministry. In both cases, their bodies were entirely dedicated to the work of the ministry. Paul actually encourages single people uh, to stay single so that they can focus their entire uh, lives on the work of the gospel. But the scriptures teach us that if we are going to engage in sex, we should not make the mistake of thinking that it's a purely physical act. It's not. It's a deeply spiritual act with deeply spiritual implications. And it is an act designed to draw us deeper into the truth about who we really are and deeper into the truth about who God really is. So let me recap where we are so far. Our bodies belong to God, number one. Number two, our bodies, including our sex and our gender, are made by God and in God's image and in his likeness. Number three, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. They are sacred dwelling places of God himself, which leads us, leads us to the final point, point number four. Our bodies are of immeasurable value. This answers the fourth question, what we're worth, what we're worth. My son Lincoln, I've mentioned this before, is an artist. He's a maker. He makes stuff all the time. And he came to me recently with a flip book that he had made. I don't know if any of you know what a flip book is, but it's one of those books where you draw pictures, you know, with a slight change in the picture, and then you flip through it, and it creates an animation. And it's really amazing. And he submitted it for a competition, and maybe I'll post it later this week. But it was a really very, very cool. There was a dragon and a knight and a horse and all kinds of great stuff happening. And so I looked at his flip book. He played me his flip book, showed me his flip book. And I said, you know what? I can make a flip book. I can make a flip book. 
And he says, oh, really? Oh, can you? And I said, yes, I can. So I made a flip book. Only had three pages. You want to see it? Show him, show him that flip book, Caleb. Will you? That was my flip book. <laughs> now, the thing is, you can take that off. The thing is, the, this work of art, this work of art, this masterpiece of mine, is unlikely to sell for a high price. Why? Because the value of art depends on the talent of the artist. My flip book artwork is not worth very much because I'm not a particularly talented flip book artist. But a piece of art from a master artist like Van Gogh, Renoir, Rembrandt will sell for millions of dollars. Why? Because the value of the art depends on the talent of the artist. Today I want you to understand a theological truth. God is a master artist and you, your body, is his masterpiece. Can somebody just let that sink in? This is what the scripture says about us. Ephesians 2.10 We are God's masterpiece. We're his masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. The underlying Greek word there is poema. This is where we get the word poem. You are God's masterpiece. The scripture teaches that your body is of immeasurable value. Your body, not just your soul. It doesn't matter whether you're tall, short, fat, skinny, black, white, brown, beige, bow-legged, bucktooth. Your body is a masterpiece. It is made by God for God. It is made to be his dwelling place. And that means your body, your body, my body, our bodies are of immeasurable value. We have undervalued. The church has undervalued our bodies. The scripture teaches that your body is a masterpiece. It is of immeasurable value. Psalm 139, 13 through 14. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The scripture is saying your body is beautiful. Your body is a work of divine art. Your body is God's poem wrapped in flesh. Your body is a temple. It's a holy place. It is of immeasurable worth and value. It is not to be commodified, bought, or sold. It is not to be harmed, misused, or abused. It is not to be denigrated, diminished, or disparaged. Your body is a masterpiece. And the reason God made your body a masterpiece is because your body was designed to be God's home. Holy, sacred, and set apart. God loves your body, and so should you. So what do we do, church, when we hear this teaching from the Word of God? What do we do when we know in our heart of hearts that we have not, all of us, not treated our bodies as temples? What do we do when we carry sexual regret? What do we do when even now we are not submitting our bodies to the authority of God in the area of sexual expression and sexual activity? What do we do when we have compromised the body that is under our care? What do we do? Because that's all of us. That's every single person in here. Unless you're nine. All of us have committed some sexual sin in our heart or in our body or in our mind or in our words. What do we do when we fail to experience and live out the truth that God says about 
us and our sex and our sexuality and our body. Well, I have very, very good news for the end of this sermon. And the good news is that 2,000 years ago, a woman was brought before Jesus who had made some very, very bad decisions sexually. Some regrettable decisions. She had slept with somebody other than her, her husband. And she was brought to Jesus by a group of religious people who knew the law and who knew what God said about sex and sexuality and knew the sexual ethic that is taught in the scripture. They knew all of it. And they brought her to Jesus with stones in their hands. And they said, Jesus, the law of Moses says that when a person commits adultery, they should be stoned. What do you say we should do? What do you think we should do to her? She's committed sexual sin. Scripture says that Jesus took a minute and then he said to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. If you haven't committed a sexual sin or any other sin, by all means, have at it. And then the scripture says he kneeled down and he started to write in the dust with his finger. And church tradition says that, we we don't know for sure what he was writing, but it says that he was writing their sins, the sins of the condemners, the accusers. Adultery, arrow. Pornea, all you guys, right? And when he stood up, the scripture says that all of the accusers had left. They had dropped their stones and they had left. Little detail, it says oldest to youngest. The older guys were like, yeah, I've got some sins stacked up here, right? They all left. And, and then Jesus turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Who, who condemns you? And she says, they're gone. They're not, they're all gone. And Jesus says two things that are just absolutely so powerful. I need you to get this. If you don't get anything else, I hope you get the rest, but get this. Jesus said two things. He said, number one, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you for your sin. But then he said, number two, now go and sin no more. Jesus' response to sin, to sexual sin, is the model for the church. The perfect model for us. Notice that Jesus doesn't condone her sin. He loves her too much to say, continue to misuse and abuse your body. I can't condone you living that way because your body is a temple and you're not treating it like a temple. So I can't condone the sin. Go and sin no more, right? But I also don't condemn you. It's not over for you. It's not over. I don't condemn you. Today, I pray that all of us, wherever we are in our lives, married, single, divorced, widowed, straight, gay, trans, or otherwise, I pray that Jesus' words would land deep in our hearts, all of us, that we would hear him say, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. I pray that we as a church would embrace the reality that number one, we are made by God and for God, that we belong to him. Number two, that we are a reflection of the divine creativity of God, that we are his image bearers, that we bear his likeness in our bodies. Number three, that we are, that our bodies are sacred, that we are temples, that we are holy and set apart as temples of the most high God. 
And number four, that our bodies are of immeasurable value and of immeasurable worth, masterpieces fearfully and wonderfully made. And I pray that as we grow in our understanding of God's grace and God's truth in the area of sex and sexuality, we would truly become a healing place. A healing place for those who long to be healed, to be restored, and to be made whole. I pray for us that like Jesus, we will gather the hurting, the lost, and the broken together. And we would say to them and to ourselves, with pure love and pure compassion, neither do we condemn you. Now come and sin no more. Let's pray. God, your word is good. It is rich. It is sharp. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a scalpel, Lord, that divides even the, the bone and the marrow of our soul. God, I pray that your word would be not a blunt instrument today, but a surgical instrument. Alleviating, Lord God, the the hurts, the pains, the regrets, the disappointments of our own lives, the confusion, the uncertainty. I pray, God, that your grace would pour over us. I pray that your truth would draw out in us, through us, the reality of who we truly are. I pray that your people, Lord God, that we would see you for who you are and we would follow you and we would live out who we are in you. I pray that we would understand, God, how beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully you have made us and how deeply and richly and longingly you love us. God, I pray for every single person here today that our hearts would be restored, renewed, and made whole in you. We trust you, we honor you, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. I want to close today by inviting you to worship in a few different ways. One way that you can worship is to fill out your connection card. Uh, If you have a prayer request or anything you want us to know about, if you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus, if you want prayer for anything in your life, sexual related, sex related or not, anything, uh, let us know and we are happy to pray for you. Our team prays for you every single week. Um, If you are a visitor or a guest and you want to take a moment to fill this out, Uh, then we'll send you a resource, a free resource called Right Now Media. It's a streaming library of about 20,000 Bible studies, video-based Bible studies. We'd love to send you that uh, as a free gift from us to you. So you can take take a moment, fill that out, and put it in the baskets at the end of service. Um, If you're a member of One Family Church, if this is your church home, we invite you to give. We invite you to participate in generosity, expanding the mission of uh, of the church. I, I, I just thought of this, but... The fact that you give allows us to help uh, groups that, that are struggling in, in areas of sexuality, especially two of the organizations that we support. One is called Black Box. One is called Rafa House. Both of those organizations help to free children who have been trapped in, in sex uh, trafficking. Uh, and your giving, your generosity is, is a part of us helping to restore and redeem and make whole the earth in the area of sex. And so we invite you to be a part of that. We invite you to be a part of giving and, and partnering with with God in, uh, in your generosity. Um, and finally, what I want to do today is we're going to take communion together as a church family. So 
what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite everybody to stand. And there are communion cups and little communion elements in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a seat back in front of you, if you're in the front row, there are some here. And there are some gluten-free ones here and regular ones. Because what this moment does for Christians is that this reminds us of the embodiment of the gospel. God didn't just come and love us and serve us in spirit. He came in body. He was embodied. That's what it means. It means incarnate. That's what incarnate means. The incarnation means that God came in flesh. And on the night that he was betrayed, he broke bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, eat, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On these little elements, if you tear off the top layer, the little top layer of plastic, it be a little wafer, a little piece of bread that you can pull out of there. And I invite you to take the bread. And then the scripture says that Jesus poured out the wine and he said, drink, this is the blood of my covenant that's being poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the little top seal off the cup and you can drink the cup. Let's pray together and then we will end the service in worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your truth. Thank you for sending your son in bodily form, Lord God, to model for us, to live out for us who we are, what we are to become. Transform us moment by moment, Lord God. Transform us into the image of your son. Draw us closer to you. Let the strength and the power of your word change our hearts, change our lives, change our minds. And let us live into the fullness of who we are in you. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.